This is SoundWise, a new music box podcast sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music. Brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to SoundWise. You're listening to Eviction's Buchlachenspiel. I'm Frank J. O'Terry, and Victoria Shen, who performs as Eviction, is my guest in this episode. We'll talk about some of her sound installations, her fascination with chaos theory, her intense live performances, which involve scratching on records with her fingernails, and even a little bit about Beyonce. Thanks so much for taking time out from your residency here to talk with me. I really appreciate that. Tell me a little bit about what this residency is and what you're doing here. Wavefarm is this organization that also does residencies and fellowships that supports work that is based around radio. So there's like the main house with three studios and a broadcasting radio station. And then on the land around here, there's different pieces that are also transmitting radio. There's like a live hydrophone company coming from a pond on the property. There's this big satellite dish in the exo-atmosphere, another satellite, and like getting a feed from outer space and then sonifying like the data stream that's coming from outer space actually is what, what it's doing. And then there's some other broad transmitting devices. And so it's really all things radio. And I think it's also including anything on like the electromagnetic spectrum. So light also counts too. So this particular residency I'm doing is in collaboration with Aaron Dilloway because the theme this year was for duos. So Aaron Dilloway commissioned me to build Mellotron by like hacking an old eight track system. Essentially what I needed was all the tape heads and also spacing the bracketing to make sure that the tape head hits exactly where it needs to be on on the tape head. Unlike a Mellotron, it's going to be all tape loops. I can change the motor speed and direction, which is kind of always nice put it in a new enclosure. And so we've just been recording tape loops using different radio sources on the property for the source material, as well as our own instruments. And we've been jamming (laughs) on that. And I think the aim is to do a release based around our time at this residency, like a cassette release, or maybe even a record. I think it's sounding really good. We're also going to be playing a show at the Avalon, and we're also doing a presentation at the what's called Upstate New York Art Fair. I definitely want to hear this. So if there's a recording, please let me know. So that's a very different kind of piece than the works I've been kind of immersing myself in of yours over these past couple of weeks. I have to tell you, I was inspired to do a talk with you because my New Music USA colleague, Ami Dang, is a huge fan of yours. Oh, no way. Was was raving about you. And then just in passing mentioned to me this fingernail scratching technique that you do and the whole brouhaha with uh, the Beyonce uncredited video. It's a cool story. It's great that it got you in some mainstream press. I want to hear what that sounds like. And I immediately, you know, went home and checked it out. I've got to confess as somebody with a giant record collection, it sort of terrifies me because I imagine oh. that it can't be a very good thing to do to records. <laughs> well, it depends. You know, uh, you could play with the records very gently and use the same kind of touch and feel and sensitivity to vinyl as you would with a normal turntable. I mean, if you have your weight set wrong on your tone arm, you could still like gouge into the vinyl too. But here's the other thing I've been making my own vinyl records anyway by using a resin cast. I don't know if you, you're familiar with that. So that's one way to get around this whole like preciousness of vinyl worry. And I got to say, like I had 
been only using vinyl that I found in the trash on street corners and stuff. You can find it all over San Francisco, where I'm from. Cutting those up, experimenting that to do like these like record mosaics or actually just playing them straight. But um, that's what I'm using for the vinyl cast. I did get an Alice Coltrane, El Duad record and I couldn't bring myself to break it. I really couldn't. <laughs> I mean, it costs something like 40 euro or something to bring over anyway. I do visual arts as well. So this is for an installation that's up in LA right now at Canary Gallery, but um, I couldn't bring myself to break it. And so the way I got around that was I cast a small fragment of it, a slice at a time. So I could attempt to get slices of the same part over and over again. My aim initially was to do like approximate footwork with records. I was trying to do some like back of the envelope math, like, oh, the BPM of like footwork stuff, length of the sample, like how much space does that take up on the record and like slice up a record that way. And it sounds pretty crazy, but I think I have to dial it in with like the type of sample I'm using as well as the amount of space. I was trying it in thirds and sixths. That's what I approximated to be the sample rate or the sample length of each footwork sample. So yeah, that's my hack, but I've been playing around so much. Just like, it's very liberating to be able to use records as its own kind of index to like create new sounds like chimeras. I mean, I can go on and on about that. Let's listen to a little bit of Victoria Shen scratching a handmade record on a handmade turntable with styluses on her fingernails. I was watching the concert that you did as part of the, the Option series, and you were talking there about how one of the records that you made, a hunk of it was in 33 RPM, another hunk was in 78 RPM, and another hunk was in 45. And I, and I thought to myself, that's interesting because when you're actually playing it, how are you dealing with those speeds? The machine can only move at one speed at a time. And then what you're doing to it is its own rhythmic thing. So what difference do those speeds make? It has to do with the pitch mainly. And so for me, it's like a way of getting a diversity in pitch with like the same speed. The problem is like when you have control over too many variables, it can be hard to keep tractable, to be intentional about stuff. I do make my own turntables that have adjustable speed and direction, but whatever the speed is, it's going to be constant across the grooves of my three-speed record. And so it's always going to have this equidistance in pitch between the three tiers. And so that's what I like. And also I just like being able to put in different sounds together at the same time. So Chinese opera, Italian opera, swing music. My most recent three-speed record is actually a 33, a 78, and a 128. And that came out mm -hmm. of, from the 70s, they had these toys called like Bag of Laughs. They're actually almost impossible to find now. I can't believe it. Supposedly, everybody had them in the 70s, but what they had was a tiny little record. It's probably only two inches across, but it had a little turntable in there. When you hit this button, it would spin the needle around the stationary little record. And it was just this really low-fi, <laughs> and it has really gigantic grooves, and so it's super loud. 
<laughs> compared yeah. to the, <laughs> the other like more standard records. And like, it's really funny, like dealing with this cross section of records through history, because you really can tell like the loudness wars, like when the volume starts to get jacked up, like the seventies and eighties and stuff, the presence of bass, the changes in production and like the way it looks in the records. But at any rate, so that's my most recent one. And the outer circle, the lowest tier is a hi-fi stereo test record. And so I wanted to be able to use just uh, like sign sweeps and sign tones. So then I could use the speed of the turntable more as, as an adjusting factor than just, you know, where I am on the record. And then the middle one is this weird band called Foreskin 500, which was released on my friend's record label, Insignificant Records. And he's not able to sell these 45s. Actually, it's a 45, it's not a 78, excuse me. A single. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's this kind of fractured fairy tale telling. So I also am attracted to the vocals in the records. Ordinarily, before I got into records, I never used any samples, any spoken word or anything like that. So that's something I've had to contend with since dealing with records and sampling is like intentionality and like curation in sound sampling. And then the laughing record. Those are the three things. And um, being able to very quickly grab from those sources is really nice. I want to go back to what you were saying about sampling pre-existing music. But before we go there, I, I'm just trying to wrap my brain around this. This uh -huh. record that's multiple speeds. Because if you have a turntable that's multiple speeds, mm -hmm. you can obviously change the speed and change the pitch that way. Mm -hmm. And then if you have the grooves that are multiple speeds and you're playing it, it's not gonna change the speed. I'm trying to conceptualize. If you have the record that has three different speeds on it, mm -hmm. and you put it on a player that's say set at 45, the 33 parts, it's gonna be fast, and the 78 yeah. parts gonna be too low. Is that what you're going for with that? I'm or not going for a mismatch. No, I'm just going for diversity and sound. That's all. It's just the what's available as for the sound palette. Yeah, maybe I am actually going for some kind of a uncanniness. So I do want to be like, oh, why is it like chipmunk voice? Why is it like chopped and screwed? Going for that effect, but not intentionally. And it's not like, a, oh, I'm like messing with the math. That's not the important part for me. I mean, it's an intuitive thing. Like I'm a very technical person, but everything I do is by feel and not by like, say, interest in pure math or manipulation in numbers or anything like that. Now. One of the things that you said in a talk somewhere is you made a comment about how you liked working in sound because sound is less culturally fixed in a way, that it's not something that has as much baggage. And yes. I thought to myself, that's interesting. Then I watched this performance in Chicago and you're using this old Chinese recording and I immediately thought of the whole history of recording in China, the earliest recordings of Beijing Opera, and then the pop stars in Shanghai in the 30s that were then, you know, outlawed during the Cultural Revolution, and then like the propaganda records that were made of the model plays. I thought, there's a lot of cultural baggage there. Oh, yeah, for sure. This is the thing. I like to think of my work from two different perspectives, like from the modernist perspective, which is all about abstraction and eluding baggage that way. And this is a lot more uh, closely resonant with my older work, which is all synthesizer and electronics and electroacoustic things. But then I have that butt up against the other aspect of my work, which is the performance part, which is like my like identity is something that is completely inescapable. I do like the modernist kind of mission, but I know that it ultimately fails because 
all value is derived contextually, arbitrarily. It could go in one eye and go out another, or it could be worth something based on some arbitrary factor, which is like some institution assigns value to it or some kind of cultural capital gets ascribed to it, right? So that's bullshit. We all know that. So how can we use things that are super full of meaning? I call it like the landfill of meaning, right? Use that in some kind of tactical way. I try and create this interface between non-meaning, that which is noise and that which is overfilled with meaning, and then take that interface, that line, and, and mine that for, I don't know, different conclusions as to how we derive our sense of value, what is aesthetically pleasing, how we position ourselves in the face of just stimulus or in the moment. And I think like in my live performance, like my point ultimately is to bring someone to the present and experience things either just completely like pre-linguistically or be like so overwhelmed with meanings that they short circuit or something like that. This is the goal, I guess. Yeah. Just to kind of unpack this a little bit more, I think that people's relationship to sound since sound is something you can't see and it's this amorphous thing and we seem to process everything with our eyes except for sound. I mean, we could talk about perfumes and scents and tastes too, which we might go to eventually in this conversation. And they're this sort of amorphous ephemeral things and sound is the one that we were able to figure out somehow to capture through recording so you can box it. But until then, you could capture images, but you couldn't capture anything from any other senses. And I think people relate to music, most people anyway, based on, oh, I heard this before, therefore it's pleasing to me. Oh, this is slightly different from this thing I heard before, but enough like it that we can have a conversation now is we're speaking these words that we've heard before and we're putting them together in new ways, but we're finding meanings. Even the music is that. You can't escape it. And when you do, then you're creating noise. It's this incomprehensible sound. Right. And I think of Susan Sontag's On the Pain of Others. When she was talking about modern art, how initially it was very painful and uneasy for people to consume because it was implaceable. There was no visual trope. They could just, ah, I understand this immediately. And so that feeling of discomfort is very important, I think, critical for people to like lean into because it's a, oh God, this is gonna get like really kind of heady. It makes me think of like Baudrillard's idea of simulacrum. Like one instance is that the existence of Disneyland. Disneyland is a simulacrum because it's convincing you that in Disneyland, this is the fantasy world. And then outside of Disneyland is the reality world. When in actuality, it's all fantasy world. The rules of reality are also arbitrary. And so I would say the same of music. It's that the rules of music are also arbitrary. So anything that exists outside of these rules is considered experimental or noise. But that's the freeing thing is that there are no rules here. Just going between in and out of these spaces of like in the rules, out of the rules allows you to like free your mind and realize that, yes, ultimately there are really no rules, right? Of course, those rules are different in every culture. One culture's music is another culture's noise and vice versa. I think there was an experiment years ago where they played young Indonesian children. This was before the world got more and more homogenized Mozart. And it made no sense to them in the same way that, you know, maybe hearing Gamelan would not have made sense to people before, say, the 1960s when recordings of Gamelan suddenly were everywhere. So fascinating. I mean, I think that has a um, place in like linguistics too, with like sapir wharf theory, how like the grammar of a language will shape your consciousness and your understanding of the world. It's totally the same with music. 
don't know if you know, there's this wonderful science fiction novel by Samuel R. Delaney, Babel 17. It was a thing oh, in the yeah. 60s. And basically they can't figure out the language that these aliens speak. And because they can't figure out the language, they can't figure out how they built their spaceship because the language is what informs how people do things. And without the context for the language, you can't comprehend what a culture is, which it's interesting to bring it back to your music, the music that you were doing before, you were doing things based on samples or pre-existing things, mm -hmm. I would contend is a lot more abstract, a lot harder for someone outside of it to understand without hearing you explain it beforehand, to just go mm -hmm. cold into it. True, definitely. And it requires this kind of accumulation of acculturation by like, oh, I've listened to experimental electronic music before. I know what a synthesizer is, you know, before they can even get their foot in the door of enjoying whatever I produce. I agree with that. So I guess to show my own bias and where my head is at, the thing that of yours that I was so intrigued by, perhaps more intrigued by than anything else I experienced so far, is zero player piano. Because oh. I have a context. I have a piano here. I play it. I write music for it. So I know what a piano sounds like. But you've totally exploded that idea. And you've turned it into this magical thing where like notes exist on staircases. And it, it's so damn cool. Uh, <laughs> you know, thank you. I, I only got to experience a little of it online. I want to just be immersed in this thing. I want the full experience of it. But that's because I have a context for that sound. This was a thing that I had a context for that you did something else with. And it was mm -hmm. magical. Oh, I appreciate that. It's not something that I've been exploring too much lately. I mean, that's kind of an old piece. It's like four years old at this point. But at that time, I was more interested in like algorithmic composition. And so I wrote a very like basic algorithm to produce like non-repeating composition, right? It's a play on, on words between like Conway's Game of Life, which is like this cellular automata game, and Conlon Noncaro, who was like one of the first composers for player piano. That was the gateway into like more physical electroacoustic things that I'm interested in now. And then I would take pieces from that installation and like play it live. I was playing a lot with feedback at the time too. So I'd like suspended like a big bass drum with a contact mic on it with one of these piano hammers mounted on it. And it was like using that as a motif too. So I'm sorry that I haven't, <laughs> I haven't really gone deeper into this zero player piano thing, but to me, it was a modernist strategy to produce a work that has to do with um, something that's self-reflexive or something that is medium specific. Like what is a piano and like how far can you push it to its like logical conclusion while still maintaining, while still arguing that it is within the medium of piano. Here's a tiny taste of what zero player piano sounds like.
I saw the clip online and it blew my mind. So in real life, when this happened, was the audience at the bottom of the stairs looking up or did they get to walk through it? How did that whole thing work? Oh, they were walking around it. It was put up for, it was a big concert, but the installation was there for a couple of weeks surrounding the concert. And so people are able to walk around it, put their ear to the banister. It was all steel. And so it, there's no electrical amplifications, totally acoustic. The stairwell itself resonated with the mahogany. The hardwood really helped express the sound. It was really loud and like where you were in the space totally changed like the experience. It also seems kind of dangerous if you walk too close, like the piano hammer would whack you and actually hurts a lot. <laughs> that was the kind of event. But then I've been able to reinstall it in different places and different contexts, like whether it's like a gallery setting. I had it installed at this theater in gray area that was a sort of a flavor piece. When people walked through the entranceway, it was playing and then they would go into this giant 360 degree diffused sound theater. It was installed in that context as well. But I haven't done anything like that in a long time. I guess this Mellotron thing, which, by the way, is called the Inhaled Yowls Machine. It's just a anagram of Dilloway and Shen. <laughs> That's kind of close, exploding a tape machine or exploding some kind of sampler into something physical. I hope you do that piece again, because I want to be immersed in that piece. I did a thing for Issue Project Room a few days ago. And they said that they would be open for like future projects, installation stuff, so just to hit them up. But that could be a venue, maybe. Bring that piano there. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you said, you know, you worked algorithmically with that, but it's mm -hmm. a thing that people walk through. So mm -hmm. it's not really based on this notion of a beginning or an end. So you don't think of it as like a duration-based piece. No, absolutely no. not. It can go on forever, like Conway's Game of Life. Getting back to that talk you did where you, you know, you're obviously a multidisciplinary artist. You work in so many different media that you said something to the effect that you didn't want to limit yourself by giving yourself a name of a specific art form to mm -hmm. say who you are and what your work is. Mm -hmm. So loaded question. What do you think of the word composer to describe your work? I think it applies to a small subset of my work. Anything that I've released on some, like, on final, on tape, on Bandcamp, digital, I think I'm playing the role of composer with those pieces. But otherwise, I'm not a composer, mainly due to the fact that I don't work with other people. I think composers really shine when they're able to provide a set of instructions for other people to execute their work. And maybe this is a problem. I was just actually having this conversation with Aaron Deloy about the ravages of DIY mindsets and how it can be limiting. You can only imagine doing what you yourself could execute just by yourself. I might want to lean in further into the composer role and do things where I like work with other people where like I have say my vision or my set of instructions like realized by another body or another interpretation, I think would be really nice to play with. But for now, it's only a small part of my practice. I think I'm much more of an improviser than a composer because I think part of composition is like, at least traditionally is all about having a pre-packaged work being shipped out and executed, realized in anywhere. And so for that, you want to control for expression of your piece you want to control for the space in which it takes place and it's all about control 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 like to me it's kind of the mcdonald's of sound where it's like anywhere in the world you go to mcdonald's you want to get the same hash brown or the same like whatever a mcdonald's hamburger 
Big Mac. So, yeah, exactly. The same Big Mac. <laughs> or a chicken McNugget. <laughs> yeah, McNuggets are totally, you know, homogenous anywhere you go. Uh, and so the I think same way, like Beethoven's Fifth is like the Mix Symphony, wherever you hear it. The Mix Symphony. That's right. <laughs> it's expressed in the exact same way. You know, you know, you know what to expect. So that's why I haven't had the most glowy impression of what composition is, but that's not the case at all, especially in contemporary music. Composition is a lot more open. I guess like Dillaway and I were just talking about George Lewis, his compositions were, it's totally wide open for interpretation by the performer. I'm a lot more fond of that kind of mode of composition. Or like, you know, Raven Chacon, I just was at the Whitney Biennial, like seeing his scores. He is a composer and he's an incredible artist. And so that kind of is like warming me up to the idea of like possibilities in composition. Raven's actually the previous talk we did on this podcast series. So yeah, he's amazing. But it's interesting, you know, I think people have these hobgoblins about the word composer. Mm -hmm. It simply means to put things together. That's all it means. I threatened that we talk about perfume and here we go, we will. Somebody okay. who makes a scent, perfumer in that industry is called a composer. Oh, interesting. Because they're putting together compounds to produce a scent. Mm -hmm. But in our world, the word composer, it's like this big C composer, it's got so much baggage. It shouldn't have that baggage. In a way, it doesn't even mean you need to do something original. All it means is that you're putting things together. Right. But we give in it all these other associations, which I think is interesting. And when you talk about acculturation, when you're putting notes together and you're writing, say, a piano piece, you're creating on an instrument that someone else built. You're playing yes. notes that other people have used. So you are putting things together. Mm -hmm. You know, there are limits to what originality can be. Obviously, it's much different if somebody like you, you're building all your own instruments, you're creating your own sound worlds. And in a way, you're a more original composer than the so-called composers that you don't consider yourself to be a member of, because what you're doing is a totally original thing from the ground up. That's yeah. a super flattering way to put it. I uh, Thanks for that. I guess I'm composing things, composing instruments, sculptures, performances or something like that, right? So like a, I guess a live performance with your definition is like a, a just a composition, just like a one-off composition or something like that. Yeah, I guess from that framework, I totally agree with you. Yes, I am a composer. I am a composer of things and moments. Yeah, that makes sense. But I just think um, my live performances or at least the reason why I was wouldn't have typically like ascribed the, that term to myself is because of my like intuitive of the momentness and like the element of chance and the surrender of control in a lot of ways. You know, elements that have been traditionally ascribed to what composers are. Something incredibly controlled, intentional. Let's sample a minute of Victoria Shen's performance as part of the Option series at Experimental Sound Studio in Chicago on May 29th, 2022.
I know you studied visual art. How did you get into this whole thing? At art school, this woman, Jessica Ryland, who is an instrument builder, artist, musician herself, had a workshop in which we were building these audio filters that she had designed. And so she gave us PCBs and the components, and we soldered everything together and tested them. She noticed that my solder joints were really smooth and they looked really great. And so she hired me at that workshop, and I ended up working for her from the ages of 19 to like 22, something like that. And so I was working for her for quite a while um, at Flower Electronics. Her office was based in MIT, and we're building what were noise synths, essentially. I mean, these are all synthesizers that are standalone modulars that are based on chaotic formulas. She's very fascinated by chaotic equations. Her instruments were, I guess, characterized by chaotic sound, just like high sensitivity to initial parameters. You could have the patch the exact same, you could have your knobs in the exact same position, but the resulting sounds would be different. You wouldn't be able to exactly zone into the exact same pattern, the exact same thing. And it was just, it was highly complex, aperiodic. It was mostly used by experimental and noise musicians, these synthesizers. And so that was kind of my gateway drug into sound. I always loved experimental music. I was listening to like a lot of like noise rock and like IDM and psych folk stuff in high school. But like harsh noise was something that was cracked open for me by Jessica Ryland. I'm going to my first noise show with her playing my first noise show. It was because of her. These instruments themselves are kind of a gateway. Like fundamentally, they are chaotic and noise instruments. And so I think that's kind of how I've become fond or keen on, you know, chaotic modes of sound making from the instrument itself and from my exposure to Jessica Ryland's world. So there's no secret story of violin lessons or, or flute lessons when you were young and like rebelling against them. <laughs> I really loved Jimi Hendrix a lot in middle and high school. And so I wanted to learn how to play guitar. I also, I wanted to play drums, but living in San Francisco, there's no real space for you to play drums in like a tiny basement apartment. So I had to settle for guitar. But yeah, my fantasy is to someday learn how to play drums and like do percussion stuff. Maybe I could go in between and just like build my own drum machine and <laughs> mess with things that way. Actually, with the with the records and the needle nails, you can get some kind of like percussive things like that and modes of, of playing. But anyway, yeah, so that's the story. Learn guitar by tabs, Jimi Hendrix stuff, blues scales. I can play all day. And then Jessica Ryland was a gateway into electronics. And then I will say, like, after Jessica, you know, I had all these instruments that I built. I wasn't really performing with them. But then I took this class called How to Make Almost Anything at MIT, which is a digital fabrication class, like CNC milling, Arduino programming, like how to make your own Arduino AVR microcontrollers, laser cutting, 3D printing, this type of thing. And so that kind of opened the world even further for me in terms of like producing anything I wanted to make, almost anything. When you mentioned percussion, I immediately thought of oscilloscope, and it's definitely a percussion piece in a way. I mean, you can listen to it that way, or at least mm -hmm. I did. And they're fascinating sounds, so it would be very interesting to hear you kind of do a deeper dive into that. Are you talking about the video that I have on Vimeo? Yeah, yeah. Let's listen to it.
So if you put an oscilloscope on XY mode, you're able to map the voltage points from two different parts of like a synthesizer versus like time. Like usually time is linear. And so you'll see this kind of side scroller of sound or like pixel tracking. But if you put in XY mode, you get spheres. And so if you play like a sine wave and different parts of the sine wave, you'll just get a pure circle on the oscilloscope. But XY mode is very useful for observing chaotic behavior. And so one of the, like, the classic things that you look for, this pattern, which is this weird, I would describe it as a FUPA. You know what? Actually, even grosser, it looks kind of like the Airbnb logo. And then the other one is like this kind of like butterfly bifurcated pattern you'll see it on an oscilloscope. Some people think that's why chaos theory is also known as the butterfly effect. Beyond the, um, oh, if a butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil, will it, will it cause a tsunami in like Japan this type of thing? Kind of like rippling effects, like multiplicative sort of effects type thing. So the oscilloscope is very handy for observing that because if you see a line that has a kind of non-regular pattern, so it's like there's some blurs or like it diverges, then that's how you know it's chaotic. And the very critical thing is that it doesn't diverge completely. It doesn't just go off into infinity. It has to come back into some bounded state. It's a very pretty poetic visualization of what's happening electronically. Percussively, I think it's just that was just a coincidence. There are chaotic things that are not so percussive, too. I'd be remiss to have a conversation with you about your work and not talk about this aspect of it. You as a performer, as a <laughs> very, very visceral performer almost in a way you know it was interesting you know hearing you reference Hendrix because I'm watching these things and seeing you manipulate these various devices it seems like something out of punk rock or out of oi and you know like music in the mosh pits kind of thing and it's not the kind of thing one normally associates with electronic music. A year ago, I had a conversation with Pamela Z, who is another San Francisco person, I'm sure your paths have crossed. Electronic music has this whole history of being really boring to watch from these like concerts of fixed media pieces to dudes in front of their laptops and who knows if they're checking email rather than making music. Whereas what she does is so compelling to watch right. with you know technology. You know, the same is true for you. It's really compelling as performance in real time. So well, how did that evolve and how important is that to the work for you and how it's perceived? I think it's so important. And honestly, I think it's evolved completely intuitively, naturally. I mean, it actually took a second for me to come out of my shell, but it was like sort of a natural response to like the music that I was playing. I like to dance a lot. I don't necessarily consider what I do in my performances as dance, but it could be considered movement. But there's this paranoid, schizophrenic aspect to everything that I do. Like there's no clear delineation of compartmentalization in my work. It all kind of bleeds together. And so I think it's the same with the sound that's being produced with like the movements that I'm making. There's, there's some diegetic link there. And so very recently at Issue Project Room show I played, I had this new piece that's a collar with a guitar pickup on it and bass strings. And I play it by changing the tension of one end of the string or the distance between the other end of the string to my neck, the collar. And so like I become this kind of string instrument in which my body is the actual body of it, though it doesn't really affect the resonance so much. 
but the tension changes the pitch, like the way I like move changes the kind of like slide sound, like the slew and so on and so forth. For me, there has to be some kind of groundedness, some kind of gold standard. And the gold standard, I think for us is always going to be like the human body, right? And this is again, coming from the angle of meaning that comes from the body, the identity, the sight. Things that affect your aesthetic understanding of the moment aren't just like, oh, who's the performer? What is like the source of the sound? But also like, what is the site that we're in and like who else is here? So all those things play into it. And I like to interact with those things. I will interact with the site, bring attention to the site, interact with the site. Like with this collar thing also, I like did things like, oh, if I'm playing at a bar, I'll put it the other end into like the bar hooks where you hang your coat underneath the bar and then I change the tension that way. So just put us in hyper-specificity. Like this is a very specific special moment that will never occur again. So this is why it's good that you're present. Also things like the element of danger, like either it's climbing on things, kind of like pushing the envelope, like how far I can get away with something without breaking it is very important to me for that exact same reason of like making you present and make sure that you know where we are at the moment. So I guess that's my rationalization for the physicality in my set. But it just, it's just more compelling for me. It makes me feel like I'm in the moment. And I think it's probably compelling for the people in the audience. This is why I think improvisation is so good. It's because you're risking it all. You're putting a great risk. And so with composition, it can feel really safe because you have an expectation that expectation is met. If it's not met, if it's like underwhelming, then, oh, well, who cares, right? But um, risk and like the position of possible failure, I think is very important. And this is something that I think I don't talk about enough, but like failure happens all the time. I'm like, oh, I have like an idea, like it's for the moment improvisation. Let me try this out. Will it fail? Sometimes. Is it embarrassing? Maybe move on, you know? But I think like that is a point that is compelling for people because they're like, oh, it could fail. Oh, she could fall or something. It's like, I think it's why people enjoy my performances because of that element of failure and risk. Something that couldn't happen in real life. Your video of Fever Pitch which is really abstract. It's clearly you performing, but it's got filters on it. And that's really interesting too, in a very different way. Thanks. That's predator vision in that uh, I used an IR camera that tracks temperature and like it, it describes different colors to different temperatures. It was like a different way to perceive the world is like through temperature instead of just light. Let's hear some of Fever Pitch which is actually a track from Eviction's 2020 LP, Hairbirth. However, I encourage you to visit the page for this podcast on New Music Box so you can also watch the video.
putting out a record during the pandemic is a very brave act. But for you, it's interesting because you've taken this object that is one of the things that you do to make music, and now it's become the receptacle for the dissemination of your music. I found a really kind of sweet irony to that. And I suppose you could take your record and then manipulate it and then it become this very meta thing. I probably should, but it seems a little too masturbatory to do, honestly. But I will say that I did not grow up with records. Like my earliest memory is listening to Taking Opera on a cassette tape with my mom. We were like splitting the earbuds. And so I wasn't around records. I had some records, but never really like messed with them. But the record release by American Dreams Records was the first time I actually like had the record had to contend with it with like as a musical object or a document. This is the thing for me, again, on the modernist tip, it's all about medium specificity. So like the medium of the record, what is this? What is a record jacket? I don't know if you know this, but a hundred of the first run of this record, I did this special edition where I rendered the album art in a copper coil. And so that turned the record jacket into a speaker through which you could listen to the record. I was really obsessed with making my own speakers. And then it occurred to me, oh, if I modulate the width of the spiral, then you can render an image. Why wouldn't you just do that with record art? So I put that out and that was kind of my entryway into the medium of the record itself. And then I started the needle nails idea was like a thing actually before the needle nails idea, I made like a glove with tape heads on it. So it was kind of like a natural thing. I also used to do nails. So it was like, this is the kind of thing where you, you think like somebody would have done this already, you know, it's kind of low hanging fruit, but of course it takes someone who was both used to do nails professionally and does electroacoustic electronics now to like make the bridge. And then I started doing like the record molding and casting. And then it all sort of got converged together when I put a speaker coil inside of a record so the record could play itself. Again, all these concepts, they have to bleed together. They can't just stay separate. The record came first and then the record exploration came after, I guess. That is so cool. Well, I guess I can't any longer get a copy of the first hundred. Those are I'm all gone. Never going to do that. <laughs> so, much work. so much work. Yeah. But as a crazy record collector that I am, you've definitely pressed my buttons with that. I'm going to go search for that original pressing there. Maybe there's there's one of them that'll turn up somewhere that'll probably wind up costing me much more than that Alice Coltrane record cost you. Yeah, I mean, the original, the record with the speaker cover, it was $100, I think. That's not bad. I mean, for, for what it bad. is, that's a deal. Considering so. the labor that went into it, yeah. It was... Totally. I don't know if you, you want to share any thoughts about Beyonce. I think it's hilarious. At the moment, honestly, I've never felt that anxious in my life because it's like, oh my God, is this really happening? This is what it's like to feel scooped. And then since I've talked to other people who have been scooped before, I mean, the fact that British Vogue changed their post, I know it, it's as easy as hitting edit and then changing some text, but the very fact that they did that, that the creative director actually responded and apologized or PR person apologized. I'm not going to say it's gracious, but it's unexpected. And it is some kind of consolation. If my work was able to reach a much broader audience than I would have been ever been able to have, even if it wasn't credited at first, I think is kind of amazing that the things that you make that you do, do have a very real widespread ripple effect, like on the world. It's kind of cool. It's actually a smaller world than you might think. 
Well, I'm thinking maybe it'll lead to an eventual collaboration with Beyonce, but you know, that's kind of how my brain works. I really doubt that she even knows I exist. I think her PR person knows I exist, but as high as it goes. <laughs> well, we can keep dreaming. <laughs> it would be nice to have you on her next album. The I one mean, I would just love to play at her mansion to play a pool party or something with needle nails would be great. That brings us to the end of this episode of Sound Lives. But before we sign off, let's listen to another track from Victoria Shen's album, Hairbirth. This is Classical Mechanics. Thanks for listening. New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the US and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our new music community.